welcome to Winged and Ready. I'm Diane Johnston, a financial advisor and institutional consultant on the Excelsior Consulting Team at UBS Financial Services. We're located in Jericho, New York, and I can be reached at 516-745-8964. My guest is Micah Burhart. She is not affiliated with UBS Financial Services. She is an author, a filmmaker, and a professional climber. Her views expressed are her own. Thank you and enjoy our podcast. Hi, and welcome back to Winged and Ready. I'm very excited to have an incredible person joining us here today. Micah Burhart has been on a journey that she describes as passion, purpose, and pursuit. She recently published a book, and she's going to have the audio book out soon as well. And I am thrilled to dig in with you, Micah, how you got to this point in your life, what got you to this point in your life, and things that you want to share with a listening audience who view themselves as social entrepreneurs, thrill seekers, athletes, parents, the whole gamut. So why don't you take a minute and introduce yourself to our audience? Great, Diane. It's wonderful to be here. Yeah. Um, so my name is Micah, and I work as a professional climber, as a social entrepreneur. I run a nonprofit that's called Legato, where we work to support indigenous people and local communities to create full intersectional well-being for their biodiversity and their people. And I'm also the mother of seven-year-old twins and what that looks like and what kind of configuration changes on a daily basis. That's incredible. That's a combination that I don't think a lot of people are going to hear every day, that you're a climber, you have legato, and you're a mom to seven-year-old twins. Talk about the intersection of those. What came first in your life? Well, hopefully and gratefully, the twins were not first. It's <laughs> hard to put it, put it all together. But, you know, I've been passionate about the outdoors since I was a young child and made my way into making a living as a climber in my early 20s. Incredible. And for me, climbing was always the thing that spurred me into action and into travel and also into wanting to make sure that my life was more than climbing. Because while I was traveling around the world, climbing in lots of different countries and lots of different contexts, I was very curious about how to make climbing deliver more to the world, but also more for myself. Because you know, we think about climbing and we think about it as something that you're doing and you're very focused on. And that's true to a certain extent, but you also have a lot of downtime. And during that downtime, my brain and the brain that I think we all have, that's constantly trying to make connections to other humans, to other purposes, couldn't slow down. And so it really became for me about putting the nucleus together and what those things could deliver. So, you know, fast forward to 2011, I was in Mozambique and had put together an expedition to establish a first ascent on a giant granite wall on the second highest mountain in Mozambique called wow. Mount Manuli and bring scientists with us to do first ascents and then also work with the local people on how they wanted to protect their mountain. And that really created the groundwork for what is now Legato. So I'm hearing protection and connection. Climbing seems like such a thrilling sport to do, and it's a unique one to find yourself doing professionally. How did you get started in climbing? I grew up in Minnesota, and I had access to go climbing at a summer camp. This was very, very basic. This was before there were climbing gyms, so in kind of the mid-80s, and loved going climbing, but moreover loved anything to do with being outside, and also loved doing things that were difficult or seemed, you know, mm -hmm. perceived as difficult outside. I got I think as a young woman, I thought that it was 
it felt really good to be powerful. It felt also exceptional to be putting myself in the path of what it took to be physically powerful. And I liked that. So climbing sort of fit that bill and continue to fit that bill as I, as I got older. And eventually when I was in college, I started climbing more seriously and took a year off of school to climb full-time. And that really sent me on my path towards um, climbing being part of my life and my profession. That's incredible and amazing that you were able to take a passion and something that you, that is such a complete part of your life and make it not only a, a living, but to transition it and to grow it into so many other parts of your life. Quick question for you as a female in finance. I know that women look at risk differently and women are different investors. Does that carry through to in climbing as well? You know, it's so interesting. I don't necessarily discern between women and men looking at risk differently. I think everybody looks at risk differently and that we have a paradigm around risk conversation that seems to be that risk is static in our lives and risk is anything but static. Risk changes on a daily basis um, and it should and so should our understanding. So in order to allow more people into the nuanced conversation of what feels good and what, what doesn't, let's kind of let's take a climbing opportunity it's an easier conversation to have if you remove a barrier to entry that seems that you should have a fixed view. And if you don't have a fixed view that you're not allowed in that conversational space. So I think that if we can broaden our understanding and our openness to a variety of conversations on risk, then everybody can really be in that. I think that people's risk index change more over the life of like how old they are, how much experience they have in the mountains how much context they have for the implications of other people's risk tolerances mm-hmm. and all of that builds an ongoing like changing risk portfolio more so than gender does. That's incredible. And as somebody who loves to sail and the water and I love risk from a very different definition that I think that most people think of when they hear the word risk. So what you just said resonated so thoroughly with me and, and I appreciate that lens. Thank you so much. So you've, you've taken life in so many interesting directions and I think that is reflective of what you just said that the context the lens the conversation it's constantly shifting and changing and how have you started to package that into into your life I mean I'm I'm looking at your website and I see raw passionate stinging this deeply affecting book how are you expressing the overlap of intersection between climbing not-for-profit and motherhood into this message that everyone needs to dig into. When I found out I was pregnant, I was really excited and surprised and then became quickly terrified when I realized I was pregnant with twins. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And the reason for feeling terrified is that I, I think many of us, in order to believe that we can become parents, we believe that we can do it. Um, That yes, it might be hard and yes, it might be a a dramatic change for us, but you know, don't worry, we can pull it off and we can pull it off and be ourselves. And for me to have surprise twins, a surprise twin pregnancy and to be at a precipice in my career where I just had a new film come out, Legato was growing rapidly and my life as a pro climber was very strong at that point. I said, okay, how do I do this? How do I just keep driving towards all these parts of myself and pull it off? And more, the book that just came out and is about to be released this audiobook version is the real-time 
reality of the fire hose of what it felt like to pull that off. It is not an expression of this is what's great. This is what like, watch me do this well. It's more, wow, how do we talk about what it really means to pull off becoming a mother and working and the questions that we have from our own childhood, the questions that we have as we bring our children up in the world. And it's a series of letters I wrote to the kids from the moment I found out I was pregnant until they were four and a half about the journey and the questions and the real rawness of what that time felt like. Mm -hmm. And it is a rawness. People always ask about balance. I don't think it exists. Do you think balance exists? <laughs> I think that we, I think we do a disservice to balance. It's something I actually talk about quite a bit and more because this idea that if we can find balance, suddenly we will feel balance, which seems mm -hmm. to be tranquility, right? Mm -hmm. It's this perception like, oh, if you're just balanced, everything will work. Well, that seems it's like you're going to be running as a rabbit after a carrot for a really long time. I think that we need to reconfigure balance in our own lives. And I think, you know, for me, I think about, oh, did I touch all these different parts of my life today? Okay, that's balance versus seeking some Zen nirvana, which I think doesn't happen because our lives change every day, right? Like from a parenting standpoint, like, you know, today happened to be, yay, spirit week, but we forgot that it was spirit week and my daughter wanted to wear pajamas to school, but she wanted to put them on five minutes before she went to school, right? It's like that did not feel balance <laughs> in the fire drill that we had for the 10 minutes before she went to school when I was trying to balance, you know, when I was trying to integrate one person from my team into a new payment system. And yet at the end of the day, I'll be able to say like, I helped my child pivot to something that was deeply important for her. And I kept my team on track today. And, you know, so I think it's, it's about this bigger picture that has more gentleness and doesn't expect this giant payoff. And that's where, that's how I really sit on balance. I like that. Gentleness without a giant payoff. Keeping that premise probably part of your nucleus, I would assume, correct? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that we have what we need for ourselves to feel balanced. It goes back to this risk piece, right? Like there's this, I think we've done ourselves a disservice to assume that we are in these static states. Like you transition from personhood and then you become, you know, you step into motherhood and we all know that these things are variable, yet so many of our narratives don't give us that variability and don't give us the fact that we can be excited about who we are, whether it's a professional, whether it's an entrepreneur, whether it's a mom, whether it's all those things, but that being clear that that's the path we're on does not mean that you're clear and happy to all of it. And I think that we need to disrupt that narrative and we need to, in order to really change the playing ground and to really help and support women specifically, but families mm -hmm. advance and kids to be raised in more stable homes. I think we need to allow people to have nuance in their conversation of how they express things like balance, how they express things like the challenges of parenting, not in an Instagram, this is so hard, but isn't it cool? But much more of, hey, this is hard and scary and I know it's what I want to do and I'm committed to it, but please can someone tell me that this is normal? And that's really what I've seen from having this book in the world is, you know, it's it's this very intimate portrayal into that normalcy and into my ping-ponging around in my emotional brain when I while I was becoming a mother and really looking for those conversations yeah. and really looking where I could be caught in that way. And I've just been flooded by these responses from parents, you know, women and men saying, mm -hmm. yes, like you spoke to something that is not part of the dialogue, but okay. something like I found myself in every single page and I didn't know I needed to find myself that way. And that's, to me, mind-blowing, right? It's, and, and it just kind of takes my breath away and says, 
this this is important. We need to create ways for us to be authentic and real in all of the ups and downs as we're sort of charting toward that nucleus. Right. And authentic and real sometimes means messy, right? I think that's to your point. Oh, it always does. (laughs) Yeah. We don't celebrate, we don't celebrate the messy enough, I believe, and that we don't allow people to sit in those moments of terror and fear and maybe wave a flag and say, hey, I'm petrified, but is that normal? And someone say, yeah, you know what? That's totally normal. And you're going to come through the other side, but learn the wisdom from sitting in this moment and sitting with messiness. Don't think getting through to the other side with a smile on your face is the end game, to your point. Yeah. It's interesting when you're saying that, Diane, it made me think about this idea of sort of whether it's a a mean or an average that we we sort of present ourselves as how we're doing on average, right? But then the assumption that goes with that is that we are all able to take the extreme the extreme ends of what's happening in our lives and to create that average but that we can do that without having bounce boards to be at those extremes and i think that's what becomes very lonely in parenthood and in parenthood plus career and in parenthood plus career and adventure in my case right and sort of saying i actually can't do this by myself i need to know that it's safe to share with not necessarily everyone, but to have people who are integral in my life that I can say, I'm having this, these fluctuations, which doesn't necessarily put me into the case of having hardcore postpartum depression. What it does is put me into being a normal person who's looking and saying, what the hell is going on, right? And that if, if we can give people these opportunities where you can choose, mentally chew through these ups and downs and normalize them, then we can all of a sudden like have better support systems to us all. And I also think that's what really trickles out, not just for emotional support, but also this is where we get paid family leave. This is where we understand like what a working environment needs to look like to be hospitable long-term for women and for men. Mm -hmm. And I think that we're blocking ourselves from these bigger conversations and in a way blocking our progress as a society. I completely agree and I'm waving my hands with like little pom-poms in them. <laughs> you could see me jumping up and down. That's very powerful and very true. And, you know, it's having like you, you have your nucleus. I like to say I need my cytoplasm. I need, I need the things that will help me hold it together. And the things being people in my life where you can say, I'm not doing great at this very moment just give me a little bit of strength through you and in sport right like you need I need crew I need people that can help me push myself to the limit when I'm at the helm and we're racing our boat and I can trust their judgment that they're seeing things and nature and the wind and in the water and other boats that I can't see because I'm focusing on the boat. I can't do it by myself. I just, I can't. And Mm -hmm. I think too, I would love your reaction on this, you know, talking specifically around parenthood. I feel that our society really pressures us to still stay in some stereotypical roles. And we're, it's a disservice to the men in our lives for those of us who have traditional family structures or even non-traditional family structures. We did some work recently at UBS 
um, around female breadwinners and we found that whether if it's a heterosexual couple or not there still tends to lean on one person and abdication coming from one person and that when you're in that dynamic in a, in a family structure it's difficult to get both people comfortable enough or feeling supported enough to equally participate oh we have so much work to do around equity <laughs> in household life yeah. um, especially when you have that family dynamics and I think that it is you know one thing that I've been speaking toward a lot I did this great talk with Anne-Marie Slaughter who wrote the infamous article for the Atlantic why women still can't have it all mm-hmm. um, you know to really talk about I you know I'm 40 and I had to think for a second because I'm about to turn 47, so I think I've been practicing already, but I'm still 46. And, you know, when I went to college, I really was in this idea that, oh, we're done with all that. And it will, you know, yeah. I can just charge through and there will, and then the shock of being in a system is, is so, so strong. Like the shock of being in a system that you, you thought that we were over and done with and you realize how deep its tentacles go Mm -hmm. and that's really a lot of what happened for me in early motherhood was saying holy cow this I thought we were past this and we're no nowhere near past this and the only way to get only way to get past it is to start having these upfront conversations and having a reckoning and I think that there are different systems that people are starting to talk about like you know Eve Rodsky's work with Fair Play is really great I think that there are other ways that we're bringing this into the conversational space but the, the sheer reality that there's still these incredibly gendered divisions of labor and that as you said like in many couples there are often people who are dually breadwinning and having the incredible higher preponderance of what that is is so broken and part of that is because we've created a work system that is and also a family system and a school system that's predicated on the fact that someone has more availability so it stretches into all of these places right it's really hard to solve it by yourself in your own home when you realize the ways that it's connected to other things and I think it can be something that you just throw your hands up and you give up on and you just take the extra work and you hope it won't crush you and you hope it won't it'll give you energy for other things in your life. But I think that that's why we need to, as much, as hard as it is, we need to be active in how we're doing school reform. We need to be looking at, you know, what these other systems are out there around paternity leave because around, you know, in general paid family leave, because until we create buoyancy in the whole system, individually in our homes, we will be drowning. Yes, we will be drowning. I love that you brought in academia your own experience in it from when you were in college. I echo that completely, fellow Gen Xer, econ major. I remember taking my women in the economy class and thinking it was all kind of BS. I'm like, this is ridiculous. (laughs) This is not the way it really works until you're thrown into it and you understand that the equanimity does not exist and that it does come crushing in in a way that you can't really express. And to your point, the letters, you know, that you were writing to your children. I'm, I have, I admittedly have not read your book, but I cannot wait to read your book and also listen to your book. Dying to dig into the letters, at what point did the letters morph for you from a personal thing to wanting to share it with, with a wider audience? Mm-hmm. Well, I, when the kids were about three years old, I kind of looked at all, and I had a bunch of audio journals too. I did a lot of this through just raw audio journal by the, you know, driving and all of a sudden like, ah, I have to have put this somewhere. And so I just hit record and um, transcribed all that to become the book. And 
for me, I started looking at it and saying, what if I can actually lace this together and this becomes a book and this has value in the world? So I was also, in theory, had been working on another book project during that time. So in my head, whenever I'd sit down to write the other book, this is what would come out instead. <laughs> so it was kind of like, oh, if I can get through this, then I will get to that other book. And then I said, oh, actually, this is the book I need to be writing at this time. And it was, you know, for me, sharing it with a couple friends and saying, do we think there's a there there? And then, you know, going through the process of, um, you know, getting it published really confirmed that and then having it in the world and seeing the, as I spoke to before, that just the clear response of, yes, we need, like, this needs to be part of the conversation. And I'm so proud that it is. And it's also terrifying to have it there. It'd be in the sense that it's, I think, no, it's not as terrifying at this point. I think I'm, I'm sort of awed by the responsibility, if that makes sense, right? Um, It's to say, okay, this mattered and it matters to other people. And I'm glad that I was in a position to be able to do that. And I feel a tremendous sense of responsibility to keep showing up authentically through that and with the people who reach out to me who are moved from it. As you've been getting the message out, if you've, you've talked to a number of audiences, we haven't even touched on the fact that you're also a filmmaker. I mean, you say you have moments of from when you're not climbing and winding down, but I mean, you sound like you're, you've done so much. You, you can't sit still, uh, can't stop, won't stop. Um, maybe you're a shark, not a climber, like you're constantly in motion. <laughs> You, I would love, you know, sort of tying into what you're sharing, what you're bringing. You've talked to a lot of audiences as a keynote speaker. What are some of the conversations that have emerged that you have found surprising or even a different, categorically a different emotion altogether that you've walked away from and been like, wow, I didn't expect that, but I'm glad it went that way. Yeah, I think for me, what's really interesting and has been interesting recently is this the nonprofit that I founded and I run, which is called Lovato. It means legacy in Portuguese and Spanish. And we work, as I mentioned, um, supporting indigenous people and local communities to really advance their well their well-being alongside of advancing the protection of their biodiversity. And right now we work in Mozambique and Kenya and Peru. We have partnerships on the horizon in several other countries. And what I've seen emerging is this connection between me standing up and saying, you know, the title of my book is more of saying, I think we all have a more that we want to have in the world. Mm -hmm. And we are at different places on the journey of understanding what that is and manifesting. And that in turn is how we need to be supporting others, whether those others are friends, family, community members, or people who we've never met. Because ultimately, so much of the way that international conservation and development work has been done has been treating the people who are in, who are like in quote unquote recipient communities mm-hmm. as if they don't have their own more. Mm-hmm. And instead that they can have one-off solutions that come in that are super well-intentioned, but actually aren't integrated. And what we've learned again and again in our lives is that we are integrated humans and we need to be able to show up as integrated in these relationships we have. And not only in the relationships that we have that are close to us, but with, with the world. And so we need to detangle our development work and we need to have it be truly intersectional. So when we talk about like the move it's about the more for all of us. It's about respecting the more in local communities to drive their own solutions and to understand that those solutions are going to cross cut all of these pieces of the puzzle. They're going to cross cut how they want their kids to be educated, what they want their health to be like for their families and for their community, how to protect their biodiversity, how to drive their livelihoods and how to do that all 
using their cultural norms as the guide. And if we can understand that, then we're going to actually get to true sustainability and true local action in the world. Yeah, that's incredible. And the a word that is popping into my head is you're describing more and that it's not necessarily swooping in and providing, but really having an understanding is tapestry. It seems like you've really created a tapestry from observing, witnessing, and partaking in life, whether it is assessing a sheer-faced rock that you're about to climb, raising twins, or looking into communities and developing legato. Like you're really weaving and observing and bringing what you're learning from different pockets of life into each segment. And I'm sure you're going to find other segments to bring it into. Well, we're pretty, it's, it's, it feels pretty full on. <laughs> but also really inspiring to do right now. Yeah, that's incredible. What is your your next challenge in front of you? And it can be something that you're working on now. I'm not saying something new, but like when you woke up today, yeah. what are you like, all right, <laughs> this is what I want to rock. This is what, and, and rock, I guess, pun intended. <laughs> this is what I want to get I done. I love it. Yeah, this um, is what's in front. Well, yeah. I would say right now the combination is learning how to have second graders, <laughs> um, <laughs> looking at a fall season of rock climbing before I transitioned to ice climbing and growing legato at the pace that our team can be healthy and thrive as we grow and have more programs and those programs are bigger and really making sure that we're creating a system that takes care of our team um, while it lets us meet the demand that we have for these partnerships. If you could let the world know anything about legato and what you hope for it from a growth perspective, what would that be? Yeah, I would say, gosh, if you're motivated in your life to add complexity and to be a full human, take a look at what we're doing and see how you can support others do the same and in turn protect some of the world's most important biodiversity. And if you know, we are in an incredible moment right now, there are lots of ways to backstop local people to do this. And we'd love to have you join us as we raise the, our next one and a half million to make that happen in the next year. Congratulations to you and your team for doing that really important work. Without people like you all in the world and the support that you're doing, it would be a devastating and, and saddened world. So I'm very grateful. I know everyone listening is very grateful to you all for doing that work. Thank you. Yeah, I'm honored to do it. And, you know, it's like to do it with support from people like you and your listeners. And how can we, where can we get the book? I'm sure it's in the normal Yeah, so you can channels. find everywhere you want to find books, you'll grab it. Um, like I said, you know, keep an eye out for the audio book that's going to be out in mid-October. You can check out me at micaburhart.com, M-A-J-K-A-B-U-R-H-A-R-D-T.com, and legato is legatoinitiative.org, and all that stuff can be found. If you Google my first name, you'll probably land on all of it, too. <laughs> That is incredible. As we're winding down, are there any last thoughts you would like our listening audience to know or nuggets for them to take away? I would say that we are all trying our asses off more than we give each other credit for. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> and knowing that in ourselves and knowing that in others and bring that into that space um, can make us all function better as humans. And it sure was a way for me to start functioning better as a mom. That's awesome. I love it. Thank you so much for your time today. And I hope everybody My pleasure. does go check out MicahBurhart.com. I'll spell it again. M-A-J-K-A-B-U-R-H-A-R-D-T. 
tea. Her bio is so much fun to read and there's a ton of information around social entrepreneurship, being a climber writer, and of course, being the incredible mom that she is to her family. So thank you so much for today. Yeah, it was a total pleasure. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients, UBS Financial Services, Inc. offers both investment advisory services and brokerage services. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways, and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. It is important that clients understand the ways in which we conduct business, that they carefully read the agreements and disclosures that we provide to them about the products or services we offer. For more information, visit our website at UBS.com forward slash working with us. UBS Financial Services, Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG, member FINRA SIPC.